0: on this episode of American Thought Leaders. If it's the last job I ever do, which at the moment it looks like it is, um, I'm proud of it. Today I sit down with British actor Lawrence Fox, now leader of the UK's Reclaim Party, and most recently the star of the new film, My Son Hunter. It's almost as if the Hunter Biden story was made for cinema. We discuss the making of the film, the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and the
1: growing assault on free speech and objective truth. I'm not going to make up a fake apology or a mea culpa. I think to apologize to people that have malevolent intent towards you is essentially to beg while being dragged to the scaffold. And I think if you're going to be hung and digitally removed and executed, then you might as well do it with your head held high. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya
0: Kelly. Lawrence Fox, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jan. Nice to see you.
0: So Lawrence, of course I've been watching uh, My Son Hunter. I actually watched it a couple of times because there's it's I would call it a dense film. There's a lot of information as much as it flows beautifully. Congratulations on this achievement. Um, the thing, I, I'll focus on this to start. I know what surprised me, I frankly wasn't expecting this, is that you spend a considerable amount of time in this film. Exposing some of the realities of uh, the human rights abuses and corruption in China.
1: Yes, and that surprised me as well, it, it, to the point of my jaw hitting the floor. In uh, in a lot of ways, certainly, uh, and also the fact that you know this was done on official presidential business, if you will. He was flying with his father, Hunter, over to China to conduct some of these deals. And, you know, some of the backhanders and things that he received and some of the people he worked for and what's uh, subsequently happened to them uh, makes one feel, you know, putting aside, taking off the acting hat for a minute and putting on the lover of democracy hat makes one feel very, very um, worried actually, to think that the, the son of the Vice President of America was working with some extremely, um, you know, dodgy, for want of a better word, people I, I, in China. And, and also, you know, as we as we look at uh, how the world has developed, and some of the things that Biden himself has said about China, uh, I, I, I found a lot of that very, very disturbing.
0: Well, let's go to the beginning here. Okay, so the the film, of course, is centered around uh, Hunter Biden's laptop and uh, its discovery, and you know there's all sorts of uh, drama that happens around that throughout. Now, now here's the interesting thing: when you got invited to do this film did you actually understand what was on the laptop? Did you understand it was real? Like what stage of development of the story were things at then?
1: Um, Yes, well, I'd obviously been aware of the laptop and actually there are more than one laptop as far as I can gather. And um, I'd been following it curiously because I thought this would seem to be a story of of political relevance, as well as being an interesting piece of drama. So when the script arrived on my desk, the only script that's arrived on my desk since my cancellation uh, over two years ago, I was quite curious to play um, such a a weirdly voyeuristic and uh, troubled and strange individual like Hunter Biden.
0: So when you play Hunter Biden, you know, despite some of the you know very difficult realities, of course he's an addict. You actually portray him as a somewhat sympathetic character, to my eye.
1: I think it's really important as an actor uh, that an actor takes a dispassionate view of their character and doesn't judge their character at all, and that try and that an actor's job really is one of the many small cogs in a creative wheel is is to. Provide the humanity to the character, so I think it would be a much more boring uh, piece of work uh, if one was 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 judging human being rather than just trying to find the humanity. so Robert Darby who directed it was very very keen to make sure it wasn't political posturing or, or the equivalent of you know the, the sort of right wing equivalent of wokery which is sort of uh, vilification and and um, hatred of this person so we both thought as the creative team that it was really important that we that we made this a human story even though it has global consequences once you consider it more broadly.
0: So You saw this script and uh, you were eager to wade in. Do you understood the implications of uh, of starring in a film on such a politically charged topic?
1: Well, I, I, I already um, experienced the ramifications of having a view about anything nowadays, uh, way back in 2020, when I said that the UK wasn't a racist country. So I'm not sure what else could be thrown at me. I just leaped at the chance to do what I was trained to do uh, at a great drama school in the UK and then spent 22 years doing relatively incident-free um, was to put on my acting shoes again so I wasn't I wasn't too concerned about um, getting caught up in the politics of it particularly no because um, politics we're all, we're, my politics are, are massively misrepresented and you know as I said before I, I just approach it as a creative task you know something to to get your creative teeth into because politics is doesn't feel very creative to me
0: well so let's go back a little bit. Maybe tell me a little more about your background and your you know what what you've actually done because for uh, for our viewers in the US they might not be
1: as familiar with you as many people in the UK would be. Right, yes, so I went to uh, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which is a wonderful drama school in England. Sadly now is uh, sending out emails apologising for its own systemic racism. And um, I worked on a television show called Lewis, or I think in America it's called Inspector Lewis, which is on PBS, and I did uh, 10 seasons of that, and became quite popular in the UK. I then finished that show because it had run its course and I'd realised I'd been doing it for more than a quarter of my life and I wanted to try something new. And I was also doing music at the same time and I'd written a song about how upside down the world was. And in the process of promoting this uh, song, I was invited on a political uh, panel show called Question Time in the UK. And um, the topic of Meghan Markle, our favourite um member of the royal family, or ex-member of the royal family, as we seem to see now, uh, came up, and a woman in the audience said that Meghan Markle had been hounded out of the United Kingdom because of the fact that we were a very racist country. And I begged to differ with her and I said no, I think she'd been handed out to the United Kingdom because the people of the United Kingdom didn't like her narcissistic opportunism. Uh, I was then told that I wasn't allowed to have that view because I was a white privileged male. And I said that was a racist comment to uh, use immutability to deny someone their right to an opinion. And after that happened, my phone exploded, and uh, along with it, my acting career. And I was denounced uh, immediately by uh, the British Actors Union equity. That's so appositely called equity. Uh, They called for me to be denounced. Like uh, like the Salem Witch Trials. And within 24 hours, my acting career as I'd known it was over. Uh, my agent hung on for another six months. But then with repeated internet pylons, uh, she gave up the ghost as well. So I ended up in a position where I didn't have a job. or was unable to support my family, but was still very awake to the idea that free speech was being so deeply suppressed, uh, certainly in the UK, which is is provably one of the most tolerant uh, and uh, welcoming countries on earth, I think behind Canada and New Zealand. And um, so I started a political party, which is now more of a political movement because political parties are pointless in the British first-past-the-post system. And yes, I find myself uh, trying to tell everyone that without free speech, we don't have a democracy.
0: Well, that's, that's quite the uh, career trajectory, for lack of a better term. Um, I, let me ask you this. Um, many people, upon being you know, denounced in the way that you were by your, you know, the association I suppose that's supposed to protect you, I guess, um, will turn around and apologize in you know, a very specific form. Did you ever contemplate doing that because you know, it can kind of prevent the cancellation or I guess that's what people would believe?
1: I, 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 no, I didn't, is the short answer. And I didn't for two reasons. And the, f- the first being the fact that I have principles. And um, and I'm also, I, I really, truly am a patriotic person and I love this country and I love what's great about it. So I'm not going to make up a fake apology or a mea culpa. And secondly, I, I think to apologise to people that have uh, malevolent intent towards you is essentially to beg while being dragged to the scaffold. And I think if you're gonna be uh, hung uh, or and digitally removed and executed, then you might as well do it with your head held high. So no, apology wasn't top of my list. And also I hadn't said anything I thought that was remotely controversial. So I didn't see why I should apologize for it.
0: I'm gonna go to something that uh, um, Gina Carano and the character, she of course plays this uh, Secret Service agent in the film, uh, she says at the beginning, uh, I think she says, none of this is true except for all the facts. And this is sort of this this idea comes through uh, the, I guess the entirety of the film and there's all sorts of uh, information that as far as I can tell, you know, aside from the sort of stylistic details is true. And I thought this is makes it a kind of a, a very unusual film actually.
1: Yes. And, and you would have thought, you know, it, it, my mind was always cast back to the films like JFK or W, or, you know, the, those Oliver Stone films, which, which really tried to investigate and interrogate political, um, you know, inconsistencies and, in, and and things that need to be examined and explored and would make for good dramatic content. So I was I was hugely surprised that you know hollywood itself wasn't interested in looking at this well i wasn't hugely surprised we all know why hollywood doesn't want to look at this but um, i thought there's this real there's real dramatic spectrum here you know it's 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 almost as if the the hunter biden story was made for cinema and and for two uh, journalists and filmmakers to come along and have to crowdfund the budget for this film and and to put it together on such a shoestring and to get it out before you know uh, mainstream culture has even has even accepted the veracity of this laptop, I thought was an incredibly brave and interesting thing to do. And I was and I I I think it is. It is it's it's great. I mean, if it's the last job I ever do, which at the moment it looks like it is, um, I'm proud of it.
0: So, you know, as it would happen at the time when the film is released, um, there's nobody at this point, at least publicly among these institutions, which were denying the laptop or were saying it has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation and so forth. Everybody is agreeing that it's real. Um, what a lot of people don't know and what hasn't been covered in the legacy media is the contents, which of course, you know, are um, explained in various ways in the film itself, Not the entirety of them or like not at least some of the things that I'm aware of, but but, but a considerable amount. So you know, do you think that, that how do you think that will impact the reception of the film, I suppose?
1: Well, again, I think that what Robert Darby wanted to do was instead of making a sort of partisan troll film, even though it does have elements of that, because you can tell the conservative frustration at the fact that this story hasn't been told properly i think uh what robert darby wanted to do uh, particularly was to make a film which would appeal to to what i would call a sane democrat you know a reagan republican that sort of thing rather than a squad democrat and i think it would be great for uh, you know, a, a, a standardly Democrat voting American to watch it and, and be able to digest the information, take it for what it is. It keeps a very light, it's quite a light, I'd describe it as a sort of gangster comedy in a way, but also to see, you know, what, what are okay this is one end of the spectrum this film is giving one hard end of the spectrum of the story but to understand that there is a story within this laptop and there is a story about a a young man or not a young man but the son of the current sitting president of the united states doing deals uh with the what are essentially not the allies of the united states certainly in china and ukraine and what the repercussions of that may be for america more broadly
0: um let, let's talk about how it was to work with Robert Davi.
1: Ah, oh, he Robert Davi is absolutely stark raving mad, um, which is brilliant. Which is what you want in a director. He's a, you know, he's a big New Yorker, um, very very passionate, very very uh, thorough, very very keen on authenticity. Uh, very, you know, he's, he's quite scary. I I love him. Uh, the the thing about making a film is. is the longer you do it, the more you realize how irrelevant you are in other aspects of the creative process. So the actor's job is really just to, as my great mentor once said to me when I was struggling with a piece of acting, he said, say your lines and F off. That's your job as an actor. And Darby's job was to take two and a half million dollars and make it look like ten, which I think he's done. He's done beautifully, and it's very difficult to make because uh, there's, there's some expositional aspects to the film, as you say. You know, the the revealing of these stories t- to dramatise that can be quite tricky and difficult. But he, I think, he's a he's a wonderfully talented and passionate and in man of great integrity. So I was I feel absolutely blessed to have worked with him. And interestingly for a set full of people that were cancelled, I've never seen such a nice atmosphere, never worked in such a nice atmosphere.
0: Um, well, and of course, you know, I when I, as I was watching the film, I saw uh, Phelim McAleer's uh, fingerprints all over it, because, you know, having seen his, you know, stroke page text, you know, drama, essentially, which was just purely made of the, of, the te- of the words in those texts. It was quite an unbelievable thing to watch. And so, very much so, these these facts are kind of integrated in curious and unusual ways into the into the story.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a name for it. I was I was reading a review somewhere, and there was a name for what happens when you turn a, a whole sequence of of facts and events and exposition into a short film. But yeah, he's um they're fantastic. Uh, and and Phelim, who worked for Unreported Story, who who produced the film. And you know they they are very strident pursuit uh, strident in their pursuit of the truth. I'd say they're probably um, a bit more partisan uh, in in their approach to it, which is which is fine because producers have to have a reason to make a film. But I think there's a sort of there's a delineation and a and a, and a distance between the producers and the writers and the actor and the director, and it was that's why you know, we have to bring to life a, a, a set of very, very uncomfortable facts.
0: So when you were preparing for this role uh, to play Hunter Biden, uh, what did you do?
1: Well, I listened to his uh, book, Beautiful Things. I think it's called Beautiful Things. I, the, the worst thing is once you do a film and you've finished it, you just wipe your memory of all of it. But anyway, I listened to him because I wanted to hear. I got, a, I got a very strong sense from him that he feels authentic. You know, whenever I've watched him, he, he really genuinely seems to believe himself, which I think is probably a very strong trait of an addict anyway. But in order to prepare, I kind of I, I sort of adopt the David Mamet approach, another man whose career is hanging by a thread for having some commonsensical views, who said that the character is in on the page and in the script, so all you have to do is just say your lines and believe them, and you become that character. So other than listening to him and becoming actually strangely bewitched by him and uh, how compelling he is in some of in his narrative, or in his truth, if you will. Um, I and you know I looking into the laptop from hell and listening to a few, um, you know, listening to quite a lot actually uh, on the online about because it's the only place you can find stuff about the laptop. Um, I just sort of wanted to get a picture of who this guy was. And I think I focused it mainly around the fact that whatever he is and, and has or has not done, there seemed to be somewhere inside of him this, this very complex relationship with the big guy or his dad. And um, that fascinated me because, you know, we all have those sorts of relationships with our fathers, very highly complex relationships.
0: So a lot of uh, folks here in the US and Canada are very interested in Gina Carano, another actress who was cancelled from an extremely high-profile gig on The Mandalorian. Um, and uh, so, what is it like working with her?
1: Working with Gina is was just an absolute pleasure. She got off a plane having just finished shooting a daily wire movie uh terror on the prairie and she literally climbed on a plane got off the plane came and just basically gave the whole set an enormous hug she's one of the warmest most authentic gentle kind people i've ever had the pleasure of working with uh, it was really hard for her because obviously the 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 way the script is written as i said uh is is quite expositional in lots of ways so she she did struggle a bit with the um having to deliver all the info but she's she's brilliant she has a sort of she has a wicked wicked charm to her and um but a kind of person you won't ever meet she's highly talented and, and and highly 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 compassionate lovely person very lucky and she's a friend now so we which is which is a great bonus you know, um, I believe that this film will uh,
0: become a valuable entry into the popular culture. It actually, you know, as I watched it, I was thinking to myself that it, it has a lot of hallmarks of what we look now at as a, maybe a cult film, right? Uh, thing, films that weren't necessarily expected to, uh, but just because of their quirkiness, because of their just kind of very unusual nature because like I said, I don't think I've ever seen a film quite structured quite this way with the juxtaposition of script, uh, you know, character development and exposition. And then these kind of these moments where, you know, there's a fact check all of a sudden, right? True or false. Um, uh, I, I think it has I think it has some promise.
1: I think so too. I think that, but, uh, Robert Darby is very bold director. You know, he he. There's lots of homages that he pays to uh, the great directors from the '90s and well and before. You know, he he's really looking. He's looking back to a to a. To the age of cult cinema, you know, where 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 cinema was much more daring, and therefore I think it's not going to be one of those ones that you can look at and go, oh, it belongs in this time or it was made then. It it has a, it has a sort of strange, and light loveliness to it, I, I, it's difficult to, to, to describe. But it's certainly not what I was expecting when I signed on the dotted line. I was expecting something much more serious, much more brutal, much more partisan, much more at, uh, as an attack dog film, but it's actually not that. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of gentle wandering through a one man's suffering and another man's profit. One of the final lines
0: in the film, something Grace says, really tore at my heart, frankly. Um, in this final sequence, she says, maybe in the end, the truth itself has become the
1: fairy tale. Well, this is, that's where we're at, aren't we, with with almost everything now uh, in life. You know, we're, we're struggling to define even the simplest of terms. I, I used to think that we had a freedom of speech problem, but I think we now have a meaning of words problem. So words have been misappropriated, uh, you know, gathered up and put back together to mean something totally different and if one doesn't have a basic concept of truth where it's very destabilizing for for people so i think that the loss of truth is something that should concern us all and um you know w- without empiricism and truth w- the world is chaos and that sort of so i think that the, the art, that is art reflecting life
0: You know, it's uh, I've been speaking with this with numerous people recently, including the folks over at Trigonometry from the U.K. as well, um, about, you know, how truth seeking or, you know, uh, who has the who has the monopoly on the truth? Who can who can say they have the whole truth? Nobody, of course. Right. But it's this pursuit of truth, this genuine pursuit of truth, which is, I think, the defining issue or whether, you know, what people say is truth is just an arbitrary exercise of power. Whoever has the power defines truth and that's truth. This is a, these are fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. And I, and you absolutely touch on that in this film.
1: Yeah, well, I I think in order for the truth to be true and for us to be able to pursue it, it has to be equal and belong to everybody. So, as you say, the minute uh, someone in a position of power decides what the truth is, the truth stops becoming the truth and it just becomes uh, a narrative or a weapon with which to silence and destroy others. And therefore, the seeking of the truth, the knowledge that the truth exists, that truth exists, and the seeking of it will only lead to, to noble ventures.
0: So one thing I, I, I felt I had to talk to you about today, of course, is the passing of the Queen of England, um, and I don't think uh, for us Canadians or Americans, there's this understanding of how important the Queen was to the people of the U.K., and you know, there's these massive lineups. I think I saw that the queue, the lineup was, was 400,000 people or something like this. We sort of imagine that this is, many of us, a sort of antiquated uh, institution, not really that important, purely symbolic. But what's come out, at least from me watching uh, you know, this sort of incredible outpouring of love and affection and respect, that there's something deeper going on here.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The um, I think the queen was a physical human manifestation of every thing, single thing that British tradition and culture and heritage is, you know I I was speaking to someone earlier about the fact that we are a we we are based in our in our history and rooted in our history very much and we're not a particularly revolutionary uh society like france that will that when something goes wrong they just rip it apart and chop everybody's head off and start again england likes to carry on likes to you know learn and grow with its traditions and with its uh with its heritage so her majesty was was the physical manifestation of that on earth to us and you could you see the crowds you're right the 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 queue went back five miles. People were queuing for over 15 hours just to walk past her coffin. People of all different colors and creeds and all different religions or none and all different sexual orientations or none. She she was a huge uniter. And we the British held her and held her and will continue to hold her in such high regard for her selfless service to the people of this country and her non-political service to it as well. All she did, from the minute she uh, ascended the crown, was represent Britain and our values overseas and at home for 70 years.
0: Um, and you know, it's very interesting, of course, uh, Prince Charles has now become King Charles. And uh, the question, I guess, is you know, he's, of course, held various you know, strong political views um, uh, in the past. Uh, wh- how do you expect this to play out in this you know, future monarchy? With King Charles at the head.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, there's heredit- two hereditary peerages in the UK, which means lords. You know, earls. Or, uh, one of them is the Earl of Norfolk. I can't remember what the other one is. But this is 16, 17 generations of people who have been in charge of how the how the king operates, essentially. You know, how accessions take place, how how the monarchy is run, how funerals are planned, everything like that. Really close advisors. And um, I sense from King Charles that he is, he he is he knows what his job is now, and his job is is to put aside some of the things that good and both good and bad that he's campaigned for, politically or things I agree or disagree with, and to uh, to take the role of the non-political monarch. And I think it will be uh, very very interest- interesting. He he said in his speech that he was going to leave his causes to uh, in more capable hands but I think that if he re- if he started to act upon those causes whilst being the monarch I think public opinion would very very quickly fall away from him so I think perhaps what we might find is that the Prince of Wales becomes a more of a political activist position uh, whilst the monarch remains silent on matters political and I think that's for the best in the in, a, in our country no oh,
0: fascinating i uh I, I look forward to seeing how that how how this all turns out. And I mean, and what do you make of these calls, which you know I've been hearing for years, of people wanting to abolish the monarchy? How big of a movement is
1: that? Well, I mean, there's there's always people that want to abolish the monarchy, and um, you know, sometimes I want to abolish the monarchy. You know, I get frustrated with it. But uh, as you can, I, I think the popularity uh, uh, of the monarchy in the UK is running at about 80%. Uh, As you say, there's a five mile long queue. Uh, The mainstream media would love to report that the monarchy is unpopular, but time and time again, they have proved to be hugely, hugely popular by the people. But the people are not represented in the media. The media represent their own smaller and more uh, progressive echo chambers. And the monarchy represents uh, represents something which really isn't progressive. It's it's like a rock on which this nation stands and... um, you know, good luck if you want to try and knock that one over. But we'll have to see.
0: Well, and you said something earlier, which I thought was interesting. You said that Reclaim has sort of moved from being a kind of a political party, a small upstart political party, into some kind of a movement. And so what, what did you mean by that?
1: Well, in the UK, we have first-past-the-post voting systems. So without proportional representation, I suppose first-past-the-post is meant to provide more, you know, give one party more power. Um, So, but it's not friendly to small political parties. So without proportional representation like you have in parts of Europe it's very difficult for small parties to do well so we will stand candidates in the election but we won't you we can't really stand them expecting to win we we can only ever stand them expecting to affect the result in a particular seat. There's only, I think, been one party that's actually managed to get, uh, other than the three dominant parties, Conservative Labour and the Lib Dems, who've managed to get anyone elected, and that's a woman called Caroline Lucas for the Green Party in Brighton. But um, Brighton is is not uh, what one would describe as a typically British city. It's very, very progressive. It's the Portland of the UK, if you will. So what about the movement?
0: How has this, this become a movement?
1: Right. So what we've done is we've started up a another organisation that runs alongside the reclaim party called the Bad Law Project, for example. So that seeks to find out where the law is being used inappropriately in England, and what we're seeking to do with that is actually to remove politics from all of our foundational institutions via the legal route. So that I suppose is is more of a movement thing to do than a than a a political thing to do. But then once we have learned where uh, there's a problem, so you have things called non-crime hate incidents in the UK, I won't go into it, but you can imagine what they are, a non-crime crime, Uh, The the political solution is then to have to get rid of those certainly in terms of education with what's happening in We have a specific class in the UK called PSHE personal social health economic And they teach children all sorts of madness in it Including gender ideology white privilege diversity equity inclusion and this sort of stuff. So we would campaign to have a standardised curriculum for that. We don't have a standardised curriculum for PSHE in the United Kingdom. So rather than going, this is our manifesto, we will stand on it, we will campaign the, uh, campaign at the Education Secretary to, ha- to have a standardised curriculum because you, you know, we've got to be really, really careful with what, the, what our kids are being taught uh, in the UK at the moment and in America, as you can see, all the time.
0: But no. But do tell me very briefly what is this non-crime crime? Give me one example that you guys have tackled.
1: So uh, I, for example, uh, posted during the holy, most holy month of Pride. Uh, which has, I think we're on to three months now uh, of the year where one has to worship at the the flag that cannot be criticised, whereas the Queen only got 10 days after 70 years' service for us to pay attention to her. I uh, mocked up, well, actually, I didn't. I I shared a meme of four pride flags put together which uh, resembled a swastika, which I there, the point being to go, this is a flag that you cannot criticise in any way, and sure enough, it was banned. Then another man... uh, posted this meme and just said, what do we think of this? He was visited by the police and told he'd committed a a crime. Uh, And they arranged an interview with him. And I made sure that we were there when the police came back. And we told them what the actual law was. So... What they, what they, non crime hate incidents were invented in a noble, for a noble reason, which was almost pre crime, you know, to stop something before it became a crime after the murder of Stephen Lawrence. But now they're being used by the police to suppress free speech. And, you know, people should be having the debate, certainly about this flag that, you know, if you you walk down the street in London during Pride Month, down Regent Street, the main shopping street in London, it literally looks like a, um, you know, some sort of rally. And I'm very nervous and critical of, of this Pride movement because it seems to me to represent, to be using minority groups to push a political agenda of, as I said before, diversity, equity, inclusion, privilege, gender ideology, that not a lot of people uh, believe in or want to follow. So yeah, we we went after the police on that one, uh, and told them that this man hadn't broken the law. And subsequently, the chief constable of the force that intimidated and harassed this man and his family was uh, removed from her post. So that's, we, we 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 do all right. All you have to do is push back a bit. The police in England at the moment, uh, a lot of them, especially the higher up, the higher echelons of the police, are very ideologically driven, and have have made the police a very political police force. So if you say the wrong thing. Uh, and someone is offended, they can report you to the police, and you can expect a visit from the police, which to me is is very very dangerous and reminiscent of other parts of history that um, have turned out less well. So w- we we really push back very very hard on any suppression of of, of free speech because you know. So, someone the other day, uh, a very famous footballer in England, said, uh, I'm not going to mourn the Queen. What did she ever do for brown and black people? And, you know, it was ri- the minutes after she died and, and they tried to cancel this guy. The right tried to cancel this guy. And I then came to his defence and said, no, he has the right to say it, whether you like it or not. He has the right to say it. The problem with free speech is that, you know, it, it includes the offensive. And um, the police in England are trying to make that not the case. The police in England are trying to go, if you're offended, it's a crime, it's not. And they need to be reminded of it. Well, Lawrence, thanks for
0: coming on the show again. Any final thoughts as we finish?
1: I think that the eyes of the world have been on Britain in the last uh, few days and you know, just over a week now. And I think that they can see that what the monarchy has done and what ancient traditions and institutions do is they bring people together and they provide stability from which we can be progressive. And that that the world as we live in it now is in a period of, of near revolution. And actually it's when we look back to the to the past and we learn from it and we move forward from that steady rock that we can we can truly have hope for the future. But if we have to tear everything down to get there, then that may not be the best way forward. Well, Lawrence Fox, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. You too. Lovely to see you, Jan.